Americans across the country are struggling with the rising cost of gas and groceries. Things are tough right now, and people are having to choose between healthy food and, you know, things that they can afford. Coming up, the many economic challenges facing the country. Today is Tuesday, May 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, high schools around the country are seeing an uptick in racist bullying. I hear racial slurs against Mexicans, Asian-Americans, the N-word, most commonly in the boys' restrooms. We'll hear what's happening at one rural high school in California and what student activists are doing about it. Also, the chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Boston University School of Public Health talks about the social media thread he wrote about wearing a mask. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Heavy police presence this hour at an elementary school in South Texas after a shooting this morning. Police in Uvalde say a suspect's in custody. Two hospitals in Uvalde and 85 miles away in San Antonio report they receive patients from Robb Elementary School. They've yet to confirm possible deaths or injuries from the attack. Texas Public Radio is reporting that the district says Robb Elementary School students were to be reunited with their parents at the city's civic center once every person from the school was accounted for. In New York, mourners are paying their final respects at the funeral of another victim of the Buffalo mass shooting. Celestine Cheney was 65 years old. When she lost her life, she was among 10 black people killed when police say a young white gunman targeted black shoppers and workers at a top supermarket over a week ago. Three months ago today, Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. After its failed attempt to take the Ukrainian capital early in the war, the Russian military is now pushing an offensive in the country's east. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more from eastern Ukraine. Russian forces are attacking areas across the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. One main target of the ramped-up offensive is the city of Severodonetsk, which in peacetime has a population of around 100,000 people. The city has come under intense Russian shelling in recent days, and Russian troops appear to be trying to choke off access along the remaining roads into and out of the city. Across the Donbass, Ukrainian forces have been fighting to hold their ground, but they're still outgunned by the Russian military, despite the delivery of heavier weapons from the United States and European allies, including nearly 100 U.S.-made howitzers. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Pokrovsk, Eastern Ukraine. It's primary day in Georgia. The most closely watched contest is the GOP race for governor. Georgia's Republican governor Brian Kemp is facing a primary challenger backed by former President Donald Trump. Member station WABE Sam Greenglass has more. U.S. Senator David Perdue lost his Senate seat last year. Now he's seeking the governor's mansion by touting false claims that the election was stolen in 2020. But Kemp has notched off a laundry list of conservative priorities, from tax cuts to expanding gun access and restricting abortion. If Kemp locks down his party's nomination again, he'll go up against Democrat Stacey Abrams this fall, who he narrowly beat in 2018. Georgia is undergoing rapid demographic and political change, and with a Senate seat on the line, too, this state is one to watch beyond Tuesday. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. NPR has learned that hospitals are confirming now two deaths from today's shooting at an elementary school in South Texas. We haven't learned the identity of the victims, but again, hospitals are now confirming two deaths. More information as we learn them will be brought to you. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has outlined a plan to prevent another homeless tent encampment in the South End. The mayor announced a so-called warm weather plan today. It increases police presence near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It also includes a move to decentralize some of the services offered in the area. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Mayor Wu says the city has placed more than 200 people in housing since it cleared the tent encampment from Mass and Cass in January. It has allowed us to move away from encampments as a city and set a different standard for health and safety in our communities. And we knew then, as we do now, that the work wasn't over, but rather just beginning. Her plan calls for more cleaning of the area, increasing access to services, and reducing crowds by creating day centers outside of the neighborhood and providing transportation to those centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Steamship Authority ferries will not run to or from the vineyard, Martha's Vineyard town of Oak Bluffs, for at least the rest of the day. The authority says it's temporarily closing the ticket office there because of staffing issues related to COVID-19. The online schedule shows ferries that would normally operate out of Oak Bluffs instead arriving and departing from Vineyard Haven. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey says she is looking forward to meeting oil and gas giant ExxonMobil in court. That's after the state's highest court today refused Exxon's request to throw out Healy's civil lawsuit against the company. The suit alleges Exxon misled state residents by marketing its products as beneficial to the environment and the fight against climate change. Exxon argued in its appeal that Healy's suit is improper and targets protected activity. In the forecast, pretty beautiful out there right now. Should have a clear, dry night tonight, falling to about 50. Tomorrow could make it to 70, another day of sunshine. Thursday, pretty much the same. Sunny, highs about 70, warmer and cloudier for Friday. 57 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. WBUR supporters include Columbia Records, presenting Harry's House, the new album from Harry Styles, featuring the single As It Was, available now. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. This is a fragile moment for the U.S. economy. Now, maybe you haven't been tracking every headline on inflation or whether a recession is coming, but chances are you felt it in your everyday life. So many of us are feeling the rise and rise of the cost of gas and groceries. Here's Kim Boder, who we caught filling up her tank in Harlem. It's disgusting. Like, people have to really decide on whether to buy food or to buy gas to get to work, to get to the food. It's it's really ridiculous. What's interesting is that many people feel anxious, even though the job market is strong. Here's Shannon Carr, who runs a nonprofit that helps needy families in Cincinnati. We used to just feed homeless people. We're taking meals to families now with children, the working poor, because people are having to choose between healthy food and, you know, things that they can afford. And another worry, that the Federal Reserve's efforts to combat inflation could tip the economy into recession. Utah realtor Kenny Parcell says rising interest rates are already taking a toll on the housing market. This is real life stuff. This is young families, people that were barely getting in before and the dream of home ownership and they're watching it go go away. 
from housing to food to transportation, we are going to talk through where the economy is right now with three NPR colleagues, Brittany Cronin, who covers energy, Chris Arnold, who reports on housing, and Scott Horsley, who covers the economy. Big picture. Welcome to all three of you. Hey, Mary Louise. Yeah. All right, Scott, you start. We'll, we'll go big picture first. We've mentioned inflation. We've mentioned how high prices are. Is that affecting what people buy? So far, inflation has not put much of a dent in consumer spending, and that's important because that is the big driver of the U.S. economy. Obviously, the people who feel it most are those who are just getting by. McDonald's says some of its most price-sensitive customers have started to downsize their orders. Walmart says some grocery shoppers are switching to cheaper store brands. Mm -hmm. Shannon Carr, who talked to our colleagues at Weekend Edition Sunday about shopping at Dollar Tree stores in Cincinnati, says she's seeing long lines there, even though Dollar Tree famously raised its prices to a dollar and a quarter late last year. The prices at the other stores are extremely high, so you have to choose your battles. And Dollar Tree, you know, at least it's under $5, right? (laughs) low-income families tend to suffer most from inflation for a couple of reasons. First, a lot of what they buy is necessities, so there's not a lot of opportunity to cut back. And secondly, they often pay higher prices even for the same items. They might not have the money or the gasoline to drive to Costco and get a bulk discount, for example. Yeah, speaking of of gasoline, Brittany, I want to bring you in here because anybody who's filled up their car recently knows prices have just skyrocketed. You've also been reporting, though, on the cost of diesel, um, which is so critical for, for trucks and truck drivers. What is going on there? Yeah, so diesel prices hit their highest level ever in the past week. So I spoke with Eric Jammer. He owns and operates a massive heavy haul truck out of Houston, Texas. At first, it was sticker shock because, you know, you hit that point where, you know, God, this is what it used to take to fill up and this thing is still going. Holy crap, it's not stopped yet. It's $800. And you're like, okay, I got to do this again tomorrow. And diesel prices are skyrocketing in part because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And also the U.S. is exporting more diesel to Europe to help reduce its reliance on Russian fuel. And so as diesel prices go up, so do prices of the goods these trucks haul, much like at those $1.25 stores that Scott mentioned. The dollar twenty five stores, yeah, they may need to rebrand. Um, you know, we were talking about the high prices at grocery stores, even at places like McDonald's. What about the people, Brittany, who grow the food? Talk to me about how farmers are affected by all this. Mm-hmm. Farmers are up against really high costs. Some of that is diesel for the tractors, tillers, sprayers, harvesters. I spoke with Phil Four. He's a sixth generation corn and soybean farmer in Western Illinois. And he says the price of diesel, yeah, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but it's not the thing that hurts him the most. Fertilizer price is the thing that is really, I'm going to say it's it's gone off the tracks. Fur says that's typically the biggest expense on the farm, and he's paying double what he did last year. Now, both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of fertilizer. Russia is, of course, facing heavy sanctions. That drags down the global supply of fertilizer, pushing up food prices here at home. Hmm, So interesting. All right, Scott Horsley, what's it going to take to bring down inflation? How does this end? Well, it's a case of supply and demand. For over a year now, demand has been outstripping supply. That's why prices have been going up. It would have been nice and relatively painless if supply had just caught up and inflation had come down on its own. That's what the Federal Reserve was hoping for for much of last year. 
But that didn't happen. So now the central bank is deliberately trying to tamp down demand by making it more expensive to borrow money. And that is not painless. Uh, It means higher cost for credit card balances and car loans and especially mortgages. Yeah, mortgages are extremely painful right now for people trying to buy a house. That is absolutely true. Yeah, Chris Arnold, jump in here. Thanks. We should say that during the pandemic, home prices themselves went up 30% just in two years, which is a massive move. And now on top of that, with the Fed raising interest rates, it's magnifying the the cost of buying. Mortgage rates move a lot in in times like this because the market anticipates what the Fed is going to be doing over the next year, and they adjust quickly. So rates have gone from less than 3% this past summer to above 5%. What that means, you do the math on that, and for a $500,000 loan, it's more than $600 a month more in monthly payments to buy that same house now. Which is not nothing. That's not spare change. I mean, the bottom line then is what fewer people can afford to become homeowners now? Right. And the numbers out today show that there are fewer people buying new construction homes. And actually, some people who've signed contracts to buy a new construction home, there have been delays. We've all heard about the supply chain problems. And so now it's six months or a year later. And they thought they could buy this house, but now rates are so much higher and they can't qualify to get a mortgage, so they can't buy the house. I talked to Kenny Parcell, a a realtor in Spanish Fork, Utah, about this. We've had 10 people we've been working with that are canceling right now. There's a lot of tears shed on uh, you have real empathy for these people. But the problem is, too, Chris, is rent prices are so high right now as well. You know, they can't afford to stay in their rental. They can't afford to lose their construction deposit or their earnest money. They're in a real pickle. And he says he's got homebuyers with deposits of upwards of $20,000, and they're worried they're going to lose that money because they're going to have to back out of buying these houses. I mean, I suppose the thing here is, Scott Horsley, I'm going to give you the last word. This is the system working, right? This is what the Fed is trying to do, is make it more expensive to borrow money because that's how they're hoping to cool off inflation. That's right. And the challenge is to cool off inflation without putting the economy itself into a deep freeze. The Fed has made it clear it's willing to tolerate some short-term pain if that's what it takes to get prices under control. One positive note, most Americans came into this year in relatively good financial shape with some extra money in the bank, so they do have some financial cushion to help them weather this rough patch. All right. Thanks to you all. We've been talking with NPR's Scott Horsley and Brittany Cronin and Chris Arnold. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. You're welcome. All right, we're just one week away from the start of hurricane season, and federal forecasters are predicting a whopping 14 to 21 named storms this year. It's part of a trend of more destructive storms driven in part by climate change. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's climate team has more. Between 6 and 10 of the storms are forecast to be full-blown hurricanes, which is a lot. Rick Spinrad is the head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. NOAA is predicting an above-normal 2022 Atlantic hurricane season, which would make this year the seventh consecutive above-normal season. That's bad news for the millions of people who live in the potential path of a storm, which includes a huge swath of the U.S., from the northeast to the southeast and the Gulf Coast. Matthew Rosencrantz is NOAA's lead hurricane forecaster. So hurricanes are anywhere from 200 to 1,000 miles um, across in their impact. 
Um, so you can be even a thousand miles from the coastline and have an impact. Flooding is a big impact, he says. Climate change is making storms rainier. That was on deadly display just last year with Hurricane Ida. It made landfall in Louisiana with powerful wind and rain and killed dozens of people there. Then it moved northeast across nine states. Just last year, uh, the remnants of Hurricane Ida uh, caused uh, torrential rains and flash flooding that killed 13 New Yorkers in basement apartments. That's New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And to underscore how widespread hurricane risk really is, NOAA announced its 2022 hurricane forecast in New York City, not exactly the place most Americans think of when they think of hurricanes. As for why we find ourselves staring down another destructive hurricane season, there have always been cycles of more and less active hurricane seasons. The last seven years or so have been an active cycle. But climate change is also a big part of it. Hotter air and hotter ocean water create perfect conditions for hurricanes. And Matthew Rosencrantz says this year the water in the Gulf of Mexico could be extra hot because of something called the loop current. It's an area of warm water um, that kind of breaks off and moves from east to west across the Gulf of Mexico. Imagine a river of hot water looping into the Gulf of Mexico, and then a blob detaches and just sits there, right in the path of any hurricane that's headed toward land. If a storm does form and move across that area, um, it's kind of like moving on to like an area where it can be kind of supercharged really quickly. That could mean storms that get big and dangerous very quickly, too quickly for people to evacuate. Or it could help create storms that dump catastrophic amounts of rain, like Ida. Federal forecasters are clear. Get ready for a tough hurricane season. It starts June 1st and runs through November. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking business news. A Cambridge-based biopharma company is shutting down. Genosha says its board of directors has voted to terminate the company's remaining two dozen employees and voluntarily delist from the NASDAQ. Genosha focused on developing drugs for cancer, herpes, and pneumonia. The shutdown comes as investors have been broadly pulling back from funding biotech companies. And on Wall Street today, a mixed day. The Dow managed a 0.15% gain. That's 48 points. It closed at 31,929. S&P and NASDAQ both came out on the downside. The S&P fell about three quarters of a percent to finish the day at 3941. The NASDAQ tumbled more than two and a quarter percent to close at 11,264. All the details on Marketplace at 630. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. In sports, Red Sox start tonight's road trip in Chicago, having won a season-high five consecutive games. Nick Pavetta does the pitching honors against Dylan Cease in the three-game series. First pitch is at 8:10. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. And Boston Ballet presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. 
Tickets at bostonvalet.org. Clear skies through the evening and overnight tonight, down to about 50 overnight. Tomorrow, another day of sunshine, just about 70 degrees. And then for Thursday, ditto. Sunny, highs around 70. 57 degrees now under sunny skies in Boston. This is WBUR. Win a diamond necklace or a cooking class in the WBUR Gala Auction. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Devastating, heartbreaking, infuriating. That is how R. Albert Moeller describes the 300-page third-party report about decades of sexual abuse and cover-up in the Southern Baptist Convention. The SBC, which is the largest evangelical denomination in the country, commissioned this investigation and report. And as the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Moeller is a leader in the church. He joins us now to talk about the report and what comes next. Welcome. Elsa, thank you. Good to be with you. Well, thank you for making the time to be with us. So the words that I quoted from you, they're from an opinion piece that you published yesterday. And in it, you also said, quote, the faithful Southern Baptist lay people, pastors, and denominational leaders will do the right thing once they know what the right thing is. So let me ask you, what do you think is the right thing to do at this moment? Well, right thing is to begin with lament and concern for those whose lives have obviously been so wounded and uh, to recognize a demand of years, indeed many years, of people who've been coming forward and been quite frustrated so the, the what do we do next yes. has to be answered first theologically and biblically, just in terms of our Christian response. And then that has to lead to action, which will include structural action. You speak of structural changes. How would the organization and church oversight need to change to ensure that women are not victimized in this way again? Every single institution has to have, every congregation has to have a mechanism whereby people who not only are victimized, but who see a possibility of someone being victimized, a vulnerability can come forward and say, this needs to be remedied. And the people in authority, wherever they are in the congregation, in the institution, the organization, they had better respond and they better respond because they care. But how do you maintain that in a system so decentralized as the SBC? Well, that's an issue, for, of course, because of our polity, you know, and our, our, our doctrine means there is no Southern Baptist church, the Southern Baptist churches. So you're right, it is very decentralized. And that's why, you know, you introduced me as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's true. But uh, that means I'm president of this institution. I'm not president of churches, nor is it the president of the Southern Baptist right. Convention. So again, in a decentralized SBC, how do you ensure that women are safe? Well, first of all, there is, uh, wherever you find a congregation, there, there is authority, there is responsibility. Wherever you find an institution, there is authority, there is responsibility. You're going to find elders, deacons, you're going to find a governing board. Somebody's going to be responsible. They better take up this responsibility. But also there's one thing that many people don't see, and that is that the convention 
at every level has the power to con- to define its own membership. And so I think what you're going to see, and by the way, in 2019, there was a start, but it's, it's clearly going to have to go much further. Churches that are not doing the right thing can no longer be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Somehow that's going to have to take place. And we have a mechanism for doing that. And uh, concrete steps have been taken. But, you know, we're just getting started at this. That's to our shame. What about the survivors? uh, What about the survivors? What would justice look like for these women? I think that has to be taken case by case, but it has to be taken fully case by case. And so some of this eventually, I'm certain, will be an issue of litigation. I think some of this will uh, be something that will be a part of conversation between churches and and uh, Christian uh, organizations and ministries and people who've been hurt and victimized or made vulnerable. Ultimately, what effect do you think this revelation of abuse and cover-up will have on the SBC's ability to speak publicly on any moral issue going forward? What do you think? Well, it certainly is a a challenge to Southern Baptists. It's mostly right now a challenge as to what we do before a watching world. One other thing I'd mention, uh, just given some of the things that have been raised here, the vast majority of the people mentioned in this report have been, in one way or another, severed from the SBC. You look at that and you say the SBC was very slow. SBC uh, entities, policies are very slow. Well, we're going to have to speed everything up. That's clearly the demand, the, the moral urgency of the time. R. Albert Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Sobering days, but I hope hopeful days, Elsa. What goes up must come down. So Boeing's Starliner capsule returns to Earth tomorrow after a short stay at the International Space Station. It's a test mission before NASA gives the company the go-ahead to launch astronauts later this year. And the final step of a safe return comes down to parachutes, From member station WMFE in Orlando, Brendan Byrne reports these are complex systems that are challenging to design and worrisome to engineers. Falling back to Earth from space is no easy feat. Before its return, a spacecraft is traveling at orbital speed, something like 17,000 miles per hour, or 25 times the speed of sound. The vehicle has to punch through the atmosphere at just the right angle and slow to a crawl before touching back down on the planet. So you're hurtling back through the atmosphere and you're seeing, uh, well, particularly from my point of view, through my toes, I was able to see the flashes of pink and yellow and white and see the sparks fly by. Chris Sombrowski flew in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule last summer. The density of Earth's atmosphere takes care of a lot of that slowing, but creates an incredible amount of energy and G-forces. The atmosphere can only do so much. About six miles up is when the intricate parachute sequence begins, with pre-parachutes known as drogues, says Pedro Llanos, a professor of spaceflight operations at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. These two drug shoots slow down the capsule significantly, going from almost supersonic speeds to just about 0.2, 0.3 Mach. That's still not slow enough, so another set of massive parachutes deploys next, letting the capsule float down at just 15 miles per hour. A lot of astronauts have uh, referred to this one of being one of the most difficult technologies. Parachute technology has been around since the dawn of human spaceflight, but it's still an engineering challenge. The technology is complex, the atmospheric conditions of deployment are constantly changing, and Janos says modeling parachutes using computers has been difficult. It is rare that if you do test after test of these parachute technologies, you will encounter the same conditions. You will perform at the same level. 
Both Boeing and SpaceX are working with NASA to transport astronauts to space and back. While they land in two different places, Boeing's Starliner touches down on land, SpaceX's Dragon splashes down at sea, the parachute technology is similar, and both companies have run into challenges. During the return of SpaceX's capsule with astronauts on board, one of the parachutes took an extra 75 seconds to deploy. Two months later, an uncrewed mission had a similar problem. NASA's Steve Stitch says an investigation afterwards found no major issues. So far, we don't see anything that uh, looks um, strange in any of the imagery or uh, off nominal. Still, those hiccups are top of mind for the astronauts inside the capsule, making the journey back through the atmosphere, says space flyer Chris Sombrowski. For me, it was just a point where, you know, these parachutes are either going to work or they're not. But at this point, you just put your hands in the engineers and the technicians, uh, and you just accept that risk. All eyes will be on Boeing's Starliner return, including the astronauts who will soon fly in the vehicle, waiting patiently for the parachutes to inflate and the spacecraft to make its graceful fall from space safely. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. Look for clear skies continuing through the evening hours, then overnight tonight down to just about 50 degrees tonight. We've got a nice stretch of weather after that as well. Sunshine for tomorrow, temperatures climbing to about 70 degrees. And then Thursday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies for the most part with highs again around 70 degrees. It is 57 degrees now in the Boston area at 430. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. It's an urban farm. It's an urban greenhouse. And this is an urban problem. Around New England, people are fighting climate change by eating and growing food sustainably. What we expect as a result of climate change is extreme precipitation. And as long as we route it, store it, save it, then it can turn into extreme food. So both of our neighbors get a lot of veggies from here. To learn what you can do, sign up for our newsletter, Cooked. Go to WBUR.org cooked. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. In Texas, at least two people are dead. Nearly a dozen are injured after a shooting at an elementary school about 85 miles from San Antonio. Uvalde Memorial Hospital says 13 children arrived at their facility. Two had already died. Authorities say a suspect is in custody, but no further details have been released. The CDC says some COVID-19 patients who take an antiviral pill may see their symptoms return after completing the course. As NPR's Ping Wong reports, that doesn't mean people shouldn't take it. More than 600,000 people have taken Paxlovid, a five-day course of antiviral pills that helps stop people with mild COVID from progressing to severe disease. Some of those people seem to fully recover, only to test positive and feel symptoms again two to eight days after their initial recovery. The CDC says these rebound cases have been mild and tend to resolve on their own after a couple of days. Those who experience a rebound might still be contagious. The CDC says if your symptoms come back or if you test positive again, you should restart isolation for five days. 
Still, health officials say the benefits of taking Paxlovid outweigh the risks. For COVID patients with risk factors, it can keep them from getting seriously ill. Ping Huang, NPR News. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, uh, Special Representative Envoy for Climate John Kerry says Russia's war in Ukraine shouldn't derail global climate goals. I think we should be hopeful and optimistic that if we make the right choices here, we can win all of these battles. We can do what we need to do with respect to Ukraine. We can do what we need to do with respect to the climate crisis. He also urged the world to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by deploying the latest technology and called for more countries to commit to limiting the rise in the global temperature. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Education Commissioner says he wants to work with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu on a path forward for Boston public schools. Jeff Riley's comments today come a day after the state released an audit highly critical of the city's school district. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, Riley stopped short of proposing a state takeover of the school system. Riley is giving city officials about a week to provide him with a statement of assurances on how they'll address the operational issues that the district review raised, including problems with bus transportation and poor quality of school facilities. But community groups in Boston say they're frustrated by the lack of specifics from the state about possible solutions. Charlie Kim is with the Special Education Parent Advisory Council. Commissioner Riley said, every option is on the table, great, can you list what those options are? Because if you're putting it on the table, that means you have an idea of what they are. Kim adds he is still optimistic that change to student services is possible, especially with the city's budget surplus and growing parent engagement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The state's Department of Transportation is seeking federal funding for some big construction projects. The state said today it has applied for federal grants to help cover the cost of replacing the bridges to and from Cape Cod. It also applied for a grant to partially fund the straightening of the Mass Pike through Alston. The federal government has $110 billion to contribute to projects nationwide as part of a bipartisan infrastructure law. Members of the Massachusetts Senate are being told to wear masks. The move comes after five people who worked in the statehouse last week tested positive for COVID-19. In a letter to members and staff, Senate leaders said masks will be required in the chamber and suggest senators work remotely. The Senate is expected to vote on the fiscal year 2023 budget by the end of the week. They have the option right now of working remotely or coming to the statehouse. In the forecast, clear and dry tonight, down just a bit, lows about 50, and then tomorrow should be about 20 degrees higher, topping out at 70, sunshine. Thursday, sunshine's back around 70 once again. 57 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Two years ago, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, Congress ordered the Pentagon to rename army bases that had been named for Confederate officers. All these bases are in the South, and today a special naming commission released its recommendations for their new names. Jay Price of member station WUNC has been following the process, and he's with us now. Welcome. Hey, also, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. So let's start with these new names. What are some of them? Yeah, so there are nine of these bases, and I'll start with some of the more familiar ones. Right here in North Carolina, we have the largest Army base by population, Fort Bragg. That would become Fort Liberty. In Texas, Fort Hood would be renamed Fort Cavazos, and Fort Benning in Georgia would be called Fort Moore. Mm, Okay, and is there any sort of pattern to these new names? Yeah, um, let let me give you a few of the others. So there's Fort Gordon in Georgia, which would become Fort Eisenhower. Fort A.P. Hill in Virginia would be Fort Walker. Fort Polk, Louisiana would be Fort Johnson. And so these are either heroes or inspirational figures for the military, and they bring a lot of diversity. Several are women. There's a Native American hero and several, several black soldiers. Fort Bragg is the only one that wouldn't be named for a person. Oh, interesting. Talk more about some of the people that these bases are newly named after. I'm so curious. Um, Sergeant William Henry Johnson, who Fort Polk would be named for, is a Black Medal of Honor recipient from World War One. Hal Moore was a hero of the Vietnam War, and his wife Julia fought for changes to improve the lives of military families. Fort Benning would be renamed for both of them and kind of a tribute to military families. Uh, General Richard E. Cavazos was the first Hispanic American four-star general and a Texas native. And, you know, one thing to understand about all of this, part of the law that mandated the renamings was the commission needed to gather and incorporate input from base communities. So while the catalyst for this process was racial justice, several of the new names, like Hal Moore, are of white troops. Uh, an easy one for the commission, maybe, was Fort Novosel. There was widespread support around Fort Rucker for that name. Michael Novosel had a, an extraordinary service record in three wars and was a Medal of Honor recipient and also a beloved member of the community after he retired. Now, Novosel was white, but William Cooper, the mayor of the nearby city of Enterprise, who was black, told me last year Novosel's race shouldn't matter if he's the best candidate. Well, if we can go back in time a little bit, remind us how these bases ended up with the names of Confederates on them. Yeah, many many of these bases date to World War One. There was a big p- push to build bases for that war, and to appease Southern sensibilities, apparently, the federal government decided to allow local input. The topic wasn't a big priority. The war, you know, the war was, and the sense is the Pentagon didn't spend a lot of thought on it. The U.S. military is, of course, really diverse, and for many, it's an ongoing problem to serve on bases named for men who fought for slavery and who, in many cases, owned slaves. Also, it seems almost arbitrary the way the names for some of these were chosen. For example, many historians are puzzled as to why Braxton Bragg was chosen as the namesake for Fort Bragg. He's believed to have been a terrible leader, even if you can somehow put aside his service to the Confederacy. All right. That is Jay Price of WUNC. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. Racist bullying on high school campuses is on the rise. The increase comes as more rural residents identify as multiracial, and their children are attending majority white schools that can be hostile. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports from one California high school where students of color are taking action. 
Jerry Loya is a junior at West County High School in Sebastopol, a mostly rural town of about 7,000. He says since he arrived as a freshman, he's had to deal with blatant racism on campus. One student called Loya her little Indian friend for months. I am not Indian, you know, I am black, Mexican, and Japanese. Loya says he was afraid to speak out at the time. You know, I didn't say anything because I was ashamed of where I was and I was scared and I didn't want any backlash. Loya's school is two-thirds white. The larger community here in Sonoma County is even whiter. So if you think about it, they can all come against us and that's, and that's a scary thing to think about. So Loya put up with it. So have others. I hear racial slurs against Mexicans, Asian Americans, the N-word most commonly in the boys' restrooms and the hallways. Senior Dylan Peña Perez calls it normalized racism, and he says teachers aren't trained to step in, so they contribute to the problem. They don't speak up in class when they hear other students say racist stuff. Last month, things really blew up when a racist promposal from a white student hit Instagram and made the rounds in the community. Jerry Loya saw the post. It said, if I were black, I'd be picking cotton, but I'm not, so I'm picking you. It's just blatant racism that's, she wasn't even trying to hide it. The racism at this high school isn't isolated. Recent data shows about a quarter of all students ages 12 to 18 saw hate words or symbols written in their schools. Things like homophobic slurs and references to lynching. At West County High, after the racist promposal went public, Principal Shauna Ferdinandson's office phones began ringing off the wall from people throughout the community. Everybody in every demographic of student showed up up in arms about what they were looking at. But the truth is, this school district has been failing minority students for years. The U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights took aim at the school in 2016, after another student of color complained of racist bullying. School officials did not do enough to stop the behavior. Ferdinandson had just come in as vice principal then. She says she fully complied with the settlement, building lessons about racism and empathy. She admits progress stalled during the pandemic, but insists she took quick action against the students behind the recent racist proposal. We had consequences around all of that. And we've told everyone that we are dealing with this. Student activists are not convinced. They organized a sit-in. About 300 students out of some 1,500 walked out of class wearing white t-shirts with anti-racist statements written in red ink. They are clear on what they want. Make ethnic studies a graduation requirement immediately and more severe consequences for racist behavior. Students began attending board meetings, calling out school leaders, and demanding the trustees remove historic plaques that were donated to the school in 1935 by a group that fought to keep ethnic minorities, especially Japanese Americans, out of California. One of the plaques is embedded in concrete at the entrance to the school. These plaques are hurting your students here on this campus. Katie Ann Nguyen is co-president of the newly formed Anti-Racist Student Committee. It is heartbreaking to me that the students even have to ask for the plaques' removal. Older Asian American community leaders showed up that night to stand with the students. How nice to meet you. Yeah, you're very brave. I'm very pleased to see you taking an activist role. The school district voted to remove the historic plaques. Nguyen celebrated outside the building. It's been hard, and there's been a lot of pushback, but I am proud of the community here. Jerry Loya says that's great. 
and they need to be in this for the long haul. This is like a battle. This is a war. We have to keep fighting. The seniors graduating next month have already handed off their blueprint for activism. For NPR News, I'm Julia McAvoy in Sonoma County. You're listening to All Things Considered. Because it is 2022, our next guest went viral for wearing an N95 mask alone in his office during a Zoom meeting. As he wrote on Twitter, Am I crazy? Am I virtue signaling? Am I fear-mongering? Or is there some rationale to wear a mask in a private office? Let's discuss. We took John Levy up on that offer. He happens to be chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Boston University's School of Public Health. John, welcome. Thank you. Hi. At BU, where you work, wearing a mask is optional. But you were doing it anyway, even on a video call, in, in virtual isolation. Why take that extreme level of precaution? Even though I was on a video call, obviously I was in a physical space, which is my office, and it shares air with other offices and with the bathrooms that are just across the hall from my office. It's important, I think, to remember that COVID is transmitted through the air and it can linger for a long time. As I mentioned on Twitter, you know, I have a spouse who treats COVID patients. I have kids who are in schools where masking is optional. And so I could be a source at any point in time to my department. And of course, there are other people, students and faculty who could be sources to me. And so wearing a mask protects me from others and protects others from me. Someone screenshotted a picture of you in your mask and shared it with other people. And it sounds like there was some pretty extreme feedback. What kind of reactions did you get? So the the context was on a Zoom to discuss the potential need for more public health protections. And I think some people saw the fact that I was wearing a mask on the Zoom and, and thought that that was some sort of signal, an attempt to frighten people or virtue signal or just some sense that I was not approaching this in a, in a fair-minded way. And so I, I think that, you know, the image was shared to sort of perhaps undermine my argument or say that I was, you know, going over the top with COVID. You decided to respond with a, a thoughtful Twitter thread explaining your masking philosophy. What did you hope to accomplish with that? I really had a, a few goals. I wanted people to understand that COVID is mostly in the aerosol phase, which means very, very small particles that stay in the air for a long time. I also wanted to get across a very practical side of things that, you know, a good high quality mask is very effective and actually can be very comfortable and affordable as well. And there's not a lot of downside to wearing a mask in a setting like that if, if you have a good mask. I think the the other thing I really wanted to try to get across, though, was more about the human side of things, not just the, the science side of things. And, you know, right now we should try to act with a little bit more grace and, and assume the best of people and assume that people who are wearing masks have very good reasons to do so. And, you know, by the way, a, a good reason to do so is to simply say, I don't want to get COVID and I don't want to give COVID to others. We've reached a point in the pandemic where many people feel done with it, but other people are still quite concerned. And so maybe inevitably there's going to be some clashing of COVID philosophies. How do you think we learn to all get along in a situation like that and accept our decisions without ridiculing one another? I think my, my hope has been that we could get to a place where we think about masks or other public health protections as just simple 
tools to be used at some points and not to be used at others. That's not the same as a lockdown. We're not shutting down society. We're just taking a targeted measure to try to reduce transmission. And then when we get to a better place, the mask can come off. John Levy is chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Boston University School of Public Health. John, thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 98.9 WBUR. Coming up, the author of the book Queer, Ducks, and Other Animals. He says that animal sexuality may not be as binary as we've been led to believe. In the forecast, clear and dry overnight tonight. Temperatures down to about 50 degrees, not too much lower than they are right now. Should be about 70 degrees tomorrow for a high with lots of sunshine. 57 degrees now in Boston at 448. Terry Stone, Managing Partner of the Americas for Oliver Wyman, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR's programming is smart, creative, informative, and thought-provoking. Just like our clients and employees who look to WBUR to help them understand the world. We are very proud to support WBUR. To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. Red Sox hit the road for a three-game series with the White Sox in Chicago tonight. It'll be Nick Pavetta against Dylan Cease. Game time is 8-10. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Wednesday, June 1st for a city-space conversation with dancer, choreographer, and MacArthur fellow Michelle Dorrance. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington's Common Ground Revisited, adapted by Kirsten Greenwich, directed by Melia Bensusen. This world premiere play brings Boston's history to life in the 1960s and 70s, culminating in three families' experiences in court-mandated busing. Starts Friday at the Huntington Calderwood BCA, huntingtontheater.org. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. At its worst, a nonfiction science book about animal sexuality could read like a dry biology textbook. But that's not the kind of book Elliot Schrafer wrote. His book, called Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality, is designed to be teenager-friendly, for one thing. It's a young adult book filled with comics and humor and accessible science. And it's filled with research on the diversity of sexual behavior in the animal world. Elliot Schrafer is with us to explain more. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. We're glad to have you. I really like the way you structured your book. It's basically an animal per chapter in a way. But you also have these wonderful illustrations. You have interviews with scientists. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to make it accessible. Because, again, you're, you're aiming for adolescents, as I understand it, in a nonfiction way. And they, be, they might be inclined to think nonfiction equals boring, dry textbook. Right. I sort of imagine, like, we're kind of sitting in the science classroom passing notes back and forth. And it even comes down to the, the doodles. There's a, an artist, Jules Zuckerberg, who did a one-page comic for each of the animal species that we discuss. So it's uh, the premise is that it's an animal GSA. A gender sexuality alliance meeting. That's right. 
Uh, and so they're each taking a turn introducing themselves. And so the bonobo takes a turn introducing how her family works and then the doodle bug and the dolphin and, and so on. Yeah, they're really, they're really great. They make the book really accessible. As we said, every chapter basically tackles an animal and something about the sexuality of that animal. Do you have a favorite or one of your favorites that you could tell us about? Sure. Well, the hard part starting to write this book was figuring out which animals to focus on. The bonobos are famously promiscuous, and the majority of their sexual activity is between females. So I knew they had to be in there as an early chapter. What's funny, well, what's interesting about these animals, are they, as you said, they're very promiscuous. I mean, there's almost this orgy-like way about how they behave sometimes. Yes, and the, what was so interesting in the early studies about bonobos, they're really fairly new to science. We used to call them pygmy chimpanzees and just thought they were small chimps and that was it. And it wasn't until the 90s and the 2000s that we started really studying them. And sex, and in particular, same-sex sexual activity in bonobos, is a way to avoid conflict and to smooth over feelings after a conflict. Uh, there was um, a really fascinating study where they gave honey, which is a really desirable food source, to a group of bonobos and to a group of chimpanzees and saw how they reacted differently. And chimpanzees, the strongest males, grabbed the food source and handed it out to their allies. Uh, and then in the bonobos, they all circled the honey and none of them touched it. And they all got very, very anxious about how this food was going to be split up. And then rather than starting eating, they started an orgy. They just all started having sex. Uh, and this is between males and males, males and females, and, and females and females. And then once they were blissed out and calm, that's when they started to eat this, this food. And chimps and bonobos are tied as our closest relatives, so it's a great metaphor for the two ways that we can also look at human nature. There's also a chapter that I found interesting about bulls, and a lot of bulls are used for breeding. They're used to inseminate females. And sometimes the bulls have to kind of get in the mood uh, the handlers help them get in the mood. And what's interesting is they often bring in other males to do that, and it's effective. And I thought that was that was very interesting. Tell us why you chose that example. Bovids are have the, one of the largest um, percentages of same-sex sexual behavior within their populations. And it's long been the ace card in the hand of cattle breeders to bring out a steer to get a bull excited uh, in order to perform sexually. Uh, and in fact, there was one of the foremost sheep researchers, Valerius Geist, who studied bighorn sheep. In the 1960s, he, he was in the wild observing these bighorns and saw that they basically live in an entirely homosexual society until the age of six or seven. The males are off by themselves, having frequent intercourse. And he didn't publish on it. He wrote about this in his memoir years later because he couldn't tolerate the idea that these, what he quote, magnificent beasts were queers. Uh, and so he resisted publishing on that. We mentioned that the book includes interviews you've done with scientists, these little question and answer exchanges. I really like those. They not only added to the science of the book, but it was interesting that these types of professionals exist. Could you tell us about one that you think is most noteworthy? Sure. I wanted to expand kids' impression of who gets to do science with get, gets in quotes there, that it's not just old guys in white coats, right? There's an upswell of young scientists who are doing some wonderful work around queer behavior and queer identities in animals. So one person I spoke to uh, was a ecologist who has transitioned genders, um, has, is still actively figuring out 
their place within the broader world and looked forward so much to the days when they could be just with their binoculars in the field, mud up to their ankles, just staring at moose. Because at that moment, all these the complicated navigation of all the all these identities just dropped away and they were just part of nature. Like they didn't have to explain themselves to the animals and the animals had no concept of judging or shaming anyone for the choices that they were making around their around their gender identity. And I found that so so moving that there is some there's a peace to be found and a simplicity and a acceptance, a radical acceptance within nature. Elliot, you've written in your book that you are well aware, these are your words, well aware that this book is bound to be controversial. But on the other hand, you also seem to be trying to assure young people out there that this is not controversial at all. It's actually quite common in the animal world. Is that part of the message you're trying to send? Yeah, I think there's, you know, some people will say, well, there's all sorts of things that animals do that humans oughtn't to be doing, right? That we shouldn't cannibalize our partners after we have sex with them, uh, that we shouldn't be living on webs out in the wild, and that we can't just cherry pick which animal examples we choose to use. Uh, But that's really getting the argument of the book backwards. Uh, I'm not trying to argue for human behaviors from certain the ways that animals can behave. Instead, I'm trying to say that we can no longer argue that humans are alone in their queerness or in their LGBTQ identities, that instead we are part of a millions of year tradition within the animal world of a variety of, of approaches to sex and a ton of advantages that come around from it. Elliot, you've written and you've said that you wished you had known this when you were younger. If you had known it, how do you think it would have changed how you felt about yourself? I think there's a loneliness to human queerness, that there is this idea that it is something that happened recently to this species and that we are alone in it, and that queer people can find each other and find community with each other, and that that is the, the goal that they, can, they should hope for. When we are heavily integrated into the natural world, and that is, that is the part of the message that I think is lost, uh, and that LGBTQ behaviors and identities are, are absolutely natural. That's Elliot Schrafer. His new book is Queer Ducks and Other Animals. Elliot, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston is one of the best places to visit in the country. That's according to a top 30 rating from the U.S. News and World Report. The hub ranks number 22 on the list. Our neighbors to the north have us beat, though. Bar Harbor, Maine, comes in at number 16. 
They're the only New England destinations on this year's list. If you're interested, by the way, Arizona's Grand Canyon takes the top spot. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear tonight, just about 50 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, highs around 70. It's 4.59. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Primary elections in Georgia today may offer clues as to how much influence the former president holds over the Republican Party. At the beginning of the election cycle, it felt like Donald Trump was a freight train if he was against you, and now it really kind of feels like a matchbox car. Maybe it hurts your toe a little bit, but it doesn't knock you off your feet. It's Tuesday, May 24th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a single block in Chelsea, Mass, may offer a template for cities looking at what works and what doesn't to cope with longer, hotter summers thanks to a warming climate. Video game producers often face a number of workplace hazards. They have repetitive stress injuries, eye strain, other occupational health issues. Now a small group of workers at one company have voted to form a union, unusual in the gaming industry. Also renowned composer and conductor John Williams and cellist Yo-Yo Ma talk about their collaborative album, A Gathering of Friends. It celebrates Williams' 90th birthday. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. As many as 14 children and a teacher are reportedly dead after a gunman opened fire at a Texas elementary school today, with others taken to area hospitals. That's according to Texas Governor Greg Abbott. The victims reported to have been shot at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, a town of about 16,000 people, some 85 miles from San Antonio. Speaking at an unrelated news conference in Abilene, Texas today, Abbott described the chaotic scene. I want to tell you that, that what happened uh, in Uvalde, is a horrific tragedy uh, that cannot be tolerated uh, in the state of Texas. And uh, there is swift action being taken by uh, local law enforcement uh, as well as the Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, They obviously uh, now know who the shooter was, and the shooter is no longer alive. The deceased gunman has been identified as 18-year-old Salvador Ronas, who was reportedly armed with multiple weapons. It's unclear whether all the injuries were a result of gunshot wounds. Republicans in Georgia today will decide whether to boot one of President Trump's biggest enemies from office that oversees voting in that state. NPR's Miles Parks reports incumbent Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is facing a primary challenger who denies the 2020 election results. The race for Georgia Secretary of State is already among the highest profile and expensive contests of its kind ever. After the 2020 election, then-President Trump asked Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find votes. Raffensperger declined, and now he's facing a primary challenge from U.S. Representative Jody Heiss, who objected to the 2020 election results at the Capitol on January 6th. Here's Raffensperger speaking to NPR in February about the GOP primary contest. I'm standing on the truth, and the people running against me aren't. And I'd rather be in my spot than their spot. The race will head to a runoff if no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote. 
Miles Parks, NPR News. President Biden is flying back to Washington after wrapping up a five-day trip to Asia. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. The group known as the Quad discussed their responses to the ongoing war and humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and reiterated their strong resolve to maintain peace and stability in the region. Speaking in Tokyo, President Biden said the world is navigating a dark hour in its shared history. Innocent civilians have killed in the streets and millions of refugees are internally displaced as well as exiled. And uh, this is more than just a European issue. It's a global issue. The Quad also wrapped up today's summit with a joint statement vowing their steadfast commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific that is inclusive and resilient. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 48 points. The Nasdaq fell 270 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Board of Education met today to go over the results of a new report on Boston public schools. The district received poor marks in a state review for its efforts to make improvements in special education, bus transportation, and other areas. The Department of Education and Secretary uh, Secondary Education has considered placing the district under state receivership because of the problems. State Representative Liz Miranda was among those who spoke today in opposition to the idea. If we truly want to support our BPS family, I do not believe Desi is the answer. We need to have an open dialogue to fully understand the needs of our community. I believe more collaboration is needed rather than receivership, and I believe that that is the best way forward. State Education Commissioner Jeff Riley made no recommendations today regarding receivership. He says he plans to work with Mayor Michelle Wu to determine the next steps. Brigham Women's Hospital staff are much more likely to call security on black patients than white patients. That is according to a new study from the hospital published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. The study was launched in response to George Floyd's murder by a police officer in Minneapolis two years ago. Lead author Dr. Giannis Valtis is a senior resident at the Brigham. He says data were adjusted for factors including age or whether a patient had a mental health condition. Even after you make all of those statistical adjustments, we were still about 40% more likely to call security on a black patient compared to a white patient. So that's a finding that concerned us, and it's something that all of us took very seriously. Alta says the findings will shape broader efforts at the hospital to tackle racial disparities and deliver more equitable health care. State lawmakers will have a tighter deadline than expected to act on Governor Baker's proposed tax cuts. The Massachusetts House has set a July 1st deadline for the legislature's revenue committee to decide whether to endorse the package. It would ease taxes on estates and capital gains and provide breaks for renters, seniors and low-income residents. Some lawmakers were angling for an extension to July 31st. Red Sox start tonight's road trip in Chicago, having won a season-high five consecutive games. Game time tonight is 8-10. Forecast clear and dry in the Boston area tonight, down to about 50. For tomorrow, 70 degrees, lots of sunshine. 57 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. At this hour, we are following news out of Texas. Governor Greg Abbott says a gunman has shot and killed 14 students and one teacher at an elementary school in the town of Uvalde. 
Abbott says the 18-year-old shooter is dead. We will be following this story throughout this evening. And now we turn to Georgia, where the state is in its final day of primary voting. Georgia is one of the most consequential political battleground states in the country. And for Republicans, the most consequential race is for governor. Republican incumbent Brian Kemp is facing off against a candidate picked by former President Donald Trump. To tell us more, we have WABE Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sasha. Sam, let's go right to that gubernatorial race, the GOP primary for governor. The incumbent, Brian Kemp, is trying to fend off former U.S. Senator David Perdue. Why does this primary matter so much? Well, people are looking to Georgia for answers about the direction of the Republican Party. You've got a challenger in David Perdue who Trump urged to run. The former president was furious with Trump for not helping him overturn the 2020 election. And Purdue has taken up that mantle, baselessly insisting that the 2020 election was stolen. Trump has made endorsements in every race from Secretary of State down to Insurance Commissioner. So this primary may tell us at least a little bit about Trump's hold on the GOP. And I gather that it's also going to show how entrenched the false election fraud claims are in the GOP. You know, I have met Republican voters of all stripes at apple orchards, margarita stands, golf clubs, you name it. You have got people who deeply believe these election fraud claims. You have voters who think there was fraud but don't blame Kemp. And there are others who just want to move forward. Uh, Georgia's Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, he is in that last camp. At the beginning of the election cycle, it felt like you know, Donald Trump was a freight train if he was against you. And now it really kind of feels like a matchbox car. Maybe it Hurt your toe a little bit, but it doesn't knock you off your feet. Kemp is an incumbent with a record that most conservative politicians would dream of. And despite Trump's opposition, it's looking like he might avoid a runoff with Purdue. And Sam, whoever wins this will advance to go up against Democrat Stacey Abrams. That's the next step, right? Yep. If uh, Kemp prevails tonight, that'll set up a rematch of their very tight 2018 campaign. Since then, more than a million new voters have registered in Georgia. But Democrats are also facing really strong political headwinds with inflation, the pandemic. I actually asked Abrams about that this morning, and she told me that demographic forces alone will not be enough to guarantee victory. We have new people coming to the rolls, but we also have voters who've been here who for the first time believe it matters if they cast their ballot. And my intention is to make certain they have a reason to show up and to vote for their future. Abrams would be the first African-American woman to be governor in this country. And one thing to watch is how gender and race play into this campaign. Just yesterday, David Perdue said that Abrams, quote, demeans her own race. Abrams told me that Republicans are focusing on her because they're hiding from their own record. Sam, what are you hearing about actual voting, the process itself? The Secretary of State's office says that Georgia is on its way to record turnout for a midterm primary election. And so far, no widespread problems have we heard about. But this is the biggest election since Georgia passed a sweeping election law in 2021, including new rules for absentee ballots and drop boxes. I chatted with a few voters today, too, and heard about abortion from so many, including Linnea Bavick, a physics grad student. It's kind of hard to say, like, I'm happy because of, like, how things are going right now with losing some rights that I, like, never thought we would lose. But I feel like Georgia is changing really fast and, like, people are more engaged politically, I guess. Georgia is right in the throes of all of the big debates our democracy is grappling with right now. And that is not going to end tonight.
WAB's Sam Greengoss in Atlanta, thank you. Thank you. Cities struggling with longer, hotter summers tied to climate change may find inspiration on a single block near Boston. From member station WBUR, Martha Biebinger takes us to the Cool Block Project in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Chelsea is an urban heat island. Summer temperatures can be 20 degrees warmer than in leafy suburbs. So there were lots of candidates for this experiment. Boston University associate professor Madeline Scammell helped narrow the list. I actually brought a map to show you of some of the hot spots. So so red, the little red dots mean hotter. Yes. Yeah. Scammell knows because her team placed temperature sensors in trees and on buildings last summer. Today, she's smack in the middle of a red zone on the chosen block. It is hot. <laughs> we didn't need the monitors. I mean, I've walked every street in this city, and these are two of the hottest streets. You know, when your eyes squint and you're just uncomfortable. This particular block heats up a lot of people. There's a boys and girls club and 10 multifamily buildings. The treeless streets and paved backyards bake residents and visitors, putting them at greater risk for heart disease, asthma, and stroke. The Cool Block Project aims to lower that risk with a package of changes, including the arrival of 47 new elm, crabapple, cherry, and hawthorn trees. Maria Balin Power, with the Chelsea-based environmental group Green Roots, grabs the attention of more than 50 volunteers. 15-year-old Brian Martinez lives just up the street. His boss told him about the project. When she said plant trees, I was like excited. I was telling my mom, like, oh, I'm going to go plant trees tomorrow. Chelsea's director of housing and community development, Alex Train, says getting rid of the black asphalt is next. So over the coming month, we're going to be reconstructing the roadway and the sidewalks that we're walking on and installing a light-colored asphalt. Corners of the block will become in-ground planters that capture stormwater and support native shrubs. The city is negotiating to install a white roof on the Boys and Girls Club. Train says a white roof on a city elementary lowered the surface temperature there by 20 degrees. And that reduces surrounding air temperatures upwards of 7 to 10 degrees in the summertime. So the white roof and new pavement could help cool the area more quickly. The trees are a longer-term investment in shade. Chelsea's cool block will be loaded with pretty much every heat intervention other cities are trying individually. Ariana Medell, who studies heat and urban design at Arizona State University in Phoenix, says it makes sense to concentrate cooling in rising hotspots. The heat that's the norm here could be elsewhere in the future, right, because places are getting hotter. So it's important to test these strategies locally because what works in Phoenix may not work in Boston. Planting trees and adding a small park to one city block may seem like an ineffective way to tackle climate change. But Maria Balin Power with Green Roots says it works. That has really been an approach that we take in a lot of our projects is sort of piloting small scale and ensuring that we can then replicate those models to really have a much broader impact. And doing something now when climate reports are delivering a lot of doom and gloom helps her cope. Some days we feel like, what, are we really having an impact? Like, is this really gonna prevent the climate crisis? And I think that it's not, it's no longer about preventing it, but it's more about protecting the most vulnerable communities. Researchers will monitor temperatures during warm seasons for the next few years to see what works. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston.
Whether you're the friend who hates pickles or the one sneaking them off everyone's plates, you probably know the name Vlasic. Dad, when are you going to eat that pickle? When am I going to eat this pickle right here? Thanks, Dad. Vlasic started out as a creamery business in the early 1900s, then expanded to pickles. Robert J. Vlasic, known as Bob, joined the family business after the Second World War. But be sure and pick the Pipic Pickle, pick a Vlasic. The Pipic Pickle for piking it up. Before long, the popularity of these pickles eclipsed Vlasic's other products. But that wasn't just because Vlasic gherkins and sauerkraut and other briny foods made consumers' taste buds happy. It's because Bob Vlasic was serious, very serious, about making sure his company didn't take itself too seriously. That's right. He decided pickles were a fun food, and he lived by this. He thought pickles were funny and spent years collecting jokes about them. You can find a bunch of them in his book, Bob Vlasic's 101 Pickle Jokes. Elsa, brace yourself. I'm going to oh tell you one of them. You ready? Oh, my God. Go. It's kind of a dad joke. <laughs> I'm already laughing. <laughs> hey, Elsa, what's green in pecs on trees? Jeez, I don't know, Sasha. Woody Woodpickle. When their business was growing, Vlasic spent a lot of money on advertising, often more than all their competitors combined. And they made sure to focus on the fun. Picture that iconic Vlasic stork, the one on all its jars. He wears a mailman hat and he holds a pickle like a cigar. That stork became the Vlasic mascot in 1974. It's a Vlasic. Vlasic. That's the tastiest crunch I've ever heard. Now, a stork might not strike you as the obvious choice for a pickle company mascot, but this was after the post-war baby boom. And the story goes that the stork got into the pickle business since the baby business bottomed out. Mom, the stork here. Oh, no. No. Oh, my gosh. I'm not expecting. It says right here, Vlasic Sweet Gherkins for the Perkins. But I thought the stork... Certainly, but with the birth rate down and the Vlasic pickle sales up... I deliver Vlasic pickles now. Oh, my. Bob Vlasic helped grow the company into America's number one pickle provider and helped shape America's eating habits around them, too. In 1933, per capita pickle consumption was around two pounds per capita. By 1978, that number had grown to eight pounds. Test Vlasic yourself and see why it's America's number one pickle. Aren't you the Vlasic stork? Well, I'm certainly not Mother Goose. Bob Vlasic said his success came because their competitors were manufacturing-oriented, but Vlasic came in as the opposite, as marketers who manufactured products so that they would have something to sell. So that's where pickles come from. Robert J. Vlasic died at his home earlier this month in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. He was 96 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a new CDC survey says more than two in five teenagers have reported persistently feeling sad or hopeless. Schools are rushing in to provide mental health support that many families cannot. Checking business news today on Wall Street. The Dow managed a 0.15% gain. That's 48 points. It closed at 31,929. S&P and Nasdaq both came out on the downside. S&P fell about three quarters of a percent to finish the day at 39.41. Nasdaq tumbled more than two and a quarter percent to close at 11,264. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 5.19.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. Tufts Medical Center in Boston says it plans to eliminate 118 jobs when it closes its inpatient pediatric units in July. The hospital says each of the roughly 100 nurses affected has found a new job within the Tufts Medical Health Care System or at Boston Children's Hospital. Tufts plans to refer pediatric patients to Children's Hospital for care. The forecast is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com. A nice, clear, dry night ahead tonight. Temperatures just about 50 degrees tomorrow. Highs of about 70 degrees. Sunshine looks like a beautiful day. Same thing for Thursday. This is WBUR. Win a farm share from Sienna Farms or a Sunbug solar installation in the WBUR Gala auction. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. We're going to talk now about an issue that's been front and center this year for many parents, teachers, school leaders, and even the Biden administration, student mental health. According to a new CDC survey of high school students, more than two in five teens have reported persistently feeling sad or hopeless. With so much pandemic-driven stress making things worse, schools are rushing to provide the kinds of mental health support that many families either cannot find or simply can't afford. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner joins us now. Hey, Corey. Hey, Elsa. So, you know, we have been hearing a lot about kids' mental health lately. Can you just give us a clearer picture of what schools are seeing from their vantage point right now? Yeah, well, we know that rates for both anxiety and depression have been rising for a while among young people, even before the pandemic. We also know that stress can be a big trigger and that for many kids, the pandemic obviously was incredibly stressful, especially for children living in poverty, not to mention the unimaginable stress of losing a loved one. As of October, an estimated 175,000 children in the U.S. had lost either a parent or a grandparent caregiver to COVID-19. That's according to a CDC researcher who spoke with our colleague Ritu Chatterjee. And the majority of these children come from racial and ethnic minority groups. Exactly. And as you've reported before, there is a lot schools can do to help, right? This is the good news. There is strong evidence that schools can play a powerful role here. Research shows kids are six times more likely to complete mental health treatment when it comes through schools than any other community setting. Think about the what here, what schools can do in really three quick buckets. So first, you know, many schools are teaching 
kids how to better communicate and manage their big feelings. And the second bucket is for kids with mild issues that you know a teacher or a school counselor can probably help with. And then the third bucket is for kids who really need the most help when maybe an outside therapist may get involved. Yeah. Well, even if research suggests that schools should do this I mean, can public schools afford to do this? Like, do they see this as a priority to spend money on? You know, I I think even before the pandemic, as a reporter, I started to see a shift in thinking from many school leaders who, yes, used to think, you know, you look at spending on a counselor or a nurse or a psychologist, they would consider it extra and not as important as academic spending on, say, another algebra teacher or new curricular materials. But now I think the pandemic has really made clear to a lot of school leaders that kids can't learn if they don't feel healthy and safe, that the two are intertwined. In fact, President Biden has said he wants to double the number of school-based mental health professionals. And, you know, this is that rare moment when money may not be the obstacle that it has always been. There is, though, one problem that money cannot fix, and that is that there simply don't seem to be enough youth mental health professionals out there, especially in our more remote school districts. Um, I want to play a story now that is about this very challenge. It comes from member station reporter Min Xian in State College, Pennsylvania, and she's going to take us right into a classroom. Rachel Welsh leads her third grade class in something called a calm down dance. It's part of an effort in her district to focus more on social emotional learning. Welsh teaches at Moshannon Valley Elementary School in rural Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. Every Wednesday, her students learn about emotions and self-regulation skills, like taking a timeout or counting down when they feel overwhelmed. Today you'll learn more about feelings. You'll find out what happens in your brain and your body when you feel strong feelings and how to notice the feelings. You need your brain. John Zeziger is superintendent of the Moshannon Valley School District. He says even before the pandemic, the district knew it needed to provide students and families with more social and emotional supports. He had hoped to do that by hiring a social worker, but filling that job opening hasn't been easy. In the absence of a trained professional, the district started asking teachers like Welsh to spend more classroom time on social-emotional learning. More than half of the district's 800-plus students come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Zedziger says many of them face stress and trauma at home. We have a lot of students who are residing with grandparents or other family members. We have a lot of single-family homes. We have a lot of uh, homes with an incarcerated parent or an addicted parent. And so all all of those things just continue to add up. He says the social-emotional curriculum has helped schools begin to address students' needs, but a social worker would allow them to do even more. There's state and federal COVID relief money to pay for one, but the district hasn't been able to spend it. Uh, It's been two years now. We've advertised regularly through a a contracted service. Zedziger knows it's important to address students' mental health because a child who is struggling emotionally isn't necessarily ready to learn. Jen Kreisman of the National Association for Rural Mental Health agrees. Sure, we can get the child to school, but how do we get the child to be able to be present, to be educated, to be available for the resources that are being taught to them throughout the course of the day. 
Greisman says she's glad to see Moshannon Valley prioritizing social emotional lesson plans, especially for younger grades. The earlier, the better. Parent Melissa Alensky says her son JJ started social emotional lessons in the first grade. He's now in third grade, and she's seen him use the calming exercises he learned in the classroom. I've heard him say, like, if he's frustrated with something, like, I need to take a belly breath. That is not something he got from our house, but I know for sure that that's part of the second step curriculum. After two years of looking, the school district was finally able to hire a licensed social worker. She started in April. For NPR News, I'm Min Xian in State College, Pennsylvania. Okay, we are back now with NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. And Corey, we heard from one parent in that story, but do we know how parents and, and families more broadly are feeling about schools getting involved in student mental health? Yeah, we do. Um, NPR recently collaborated with Ipsos on a poll, and we included several questions on this very subject. So we asked, if the kind of social emotional wellness program that we just heard about was available at your child's school, how much, if at all, do you think your child would benefit? And three quarters, Elsa, said their kids would benefit somewhat. And the response was nearly as strong for mental health counseling in school. But we also found that for a big chunk of families, these services don't appear to be available or they don't know about them. Almost half said their kids' schools don't offer mental health counseling, and more than half said their kids don't have access to social-emotional wellness programs. And there's one more challenge here that I know is top of mind for school leaders, and that is they need to make sure that when these pandemic dollars do dry up in a few years, that all of those services also don't come to a crashing halt. That is NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you so much, Corey. Thanks for having me, Elsa. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Our stretch of comfortable May weather continues tonight. Clear, just some light breezes down around 50. And for tomorrow, sunshine, temperatures up to about 70 degrees. Then Thursday, the same thing, sunny and milder, around 70 once again. 57 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Animated by a legacy of promoting inclusion and a commitment to expanding human understanding, join Rachel Maddow, Donna Shalala, and others to explore education access and honor the trailblazing civil rights advocate Sherilyn Eiffel, May 27th, radcliffe.harvard.edu slash events. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmers market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers2you.com slash WBUR. One of the biggest surprises of the war is how well Ukrainian forces have performed against Russia. Behind some of that is a little-known program built around the U.S. National Guard. Yes, we do increase actual combat capability of our partners, but what we really deliver is this notion of we really are coming in to help. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. In Texas, at least 14 children and a teacher were killed in a mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, about 85 miles from San Antonio. Several others were injured. Governor Greg Abbott says the gunman, an 18-year-old man who lived in the town, is also dead. He's believed to have shot his grandmother before opening fire at the school. Abbott also says two officers were shot but not seriously injured. The Justice Department says one of the world's biggest mining and commodity trading companies, Glencore, has agreed to plead guilty to corruption and bribery charges and will pay $1.1 billion in fines. Attorney General Merrick Garland says those charges include bribing foreign officials in seven countries and... The second plea involves Glencore's U.S. commodities trading arm, Glencore Limited, which engaged in a scheme to manipulate fuel oil prices at two of the busiest commercial shipping ports in the United States over the course of eight years. He says two former Glencore traders have pleaded guilty for their involvement in the company's crimes. The Army Naming Commission has recommended new names for nine bases named after Confederate leaders. Texas Public Radio's Carson Frame reports Fort Hood in Central Texas is among them. Congress passed a law last year that required the military to rename the bases by 2023. The panel tasked with that job has suggested renaming Fort Hood after Richard E. Cavazos, a Texas-born Korean War veteran who became the Army's first Latino four-star general. The other bases in question are Fort Bragg, Fort Rucker, Fort Polk, Fort Benning, Fort Gordon, Fort A.P. Hill, Fort Lee, and Fort Pickett. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Congress still have to approve the recommendations. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 48, the Nasdaq down 270. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic congressional delegation are expressing outrage after today's deadly shooting in Texas. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says America cannot allow kids to grow up in a country where mass shootings happen again and again. Congressman Jake Auchincloss says lawmakers have the power to prevent such incidents. He says, quote, too many Republicans lack the political courage. At a state Board of Education meeting today, board members took up a scathing report on the status of Boston public schools. Education Commissioner Jeff Riley says it's too soon to say whether the state should place Boston schools into receivership. I am not coming to the board today with a recommendation, nor am I asking you to take a vote on next steps. With that said, this report makes it clear that urgent action is required. Commissioner Riley says he hopes to work with Mayor Michelle Wu on the matter. The report says Boston has made strides in improving teacher diversity and professional development, but the city continues to fall short of acceptable minimum standards in several areas, including transportation and special education. Mayor Wu has outlined a plan to prevent another homeless tent encampment in the South End. The mayor announced a so-called warm weather plan today. It increases police presence near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It also includes a move to decentralize some services offered in the area. WBR's Deborah Becker has more. Mayor Wu says the city has placed more than 200 people in housing since it cleared the tent encampment for Mass and Cass in January. It has allowed us to move away from encampments as a city and set a different standard for health and safety in our communities. And we knew then, as we do now, that the work wasn't over, but rather just beginning. Her plan calls for more cleaning of the area, increasing access to services, and reducing crowds by creating day centers outside of the neighborhood and providing transportation to those centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. 
The Suffolk County interim DA says he's launching a pilot program to offer a different approach to criminal punishment. Kevin Hayden says the so-called restorative justice program will roll out in Chelsea, Charlestown and Roxbury Municipal Courts. Through it, people charged with certain crimes will enter into dialogue with victims and affected community members. The process will come up with a way for a defendant to make amends without being sentenced to prison. The district attorney says the goal is to promote accountability by helping criminal offenders make amends with the people and communities they harmed. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Still pretty nice out there. 57 degrees should drop to just about 50 overnight tonight. Clear skies. Tomorrow, making it to 70, another day of sunshine. Again, 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Letsmakeaplan.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. Fourteen children and one teacher are dead after a gunman opened fire in a Texas elementary school. The gunman is also dead. Authorities believe the 18-year-old shooter was acting alone. I'm joined now by Mark Duvalson, the editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Express News. And Mark, I'm sorry we have to talk about this, especially so soon after what happened in Buffalo, New York. Thanks for making time yes, for us. Would you briefly My walk pleasure. us through what we know about this incident? Well, Sasha, we've been following it all afternoon. The first reports came in around 1 o'clock uh, that the, all the schools in Uvalde had been locked down because of the shooter situation. And then uh, a little bit later, that was limited to just one uh, school, um, an elementary, Rob Elementary School. And then we began to get reports of uh, students arriving at the emergency room at Uvalde Memorial Hospital. Parents were told to report to the cafeteria and await further instructions. And then we received reports that University Hospital in San Antonio, which is uh, almost 90 miles east of Uvalde, uh, was also receiving patients, uh, no information available about their condition. And that was the state of information for a couple of hours until about a half hour ago or so, Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott uh, of Texas, held a news conference and revealed the full scope of it, that 14 students and uh, one teacher had been killed, and the 15, including the gunman. We mentioned that the gunman is believed to be 18, believed to have been acting alone, as you just said, is, is now dead. Is anything else known about this person? Very little known. There's a report that he was a student at Uvalde High School. Uh, but other than that, there's a, uh, Sasha, there's a briefing happening right now in Uvalde where we have a reporter. Uh, so this information is now emerging in real time. Uh, the police and school officials are holding the briefing as we speak uh, in the city. Mark, there are also reports of several injuries in addition to those fatalities. Can you tell us anything about the injuries? 
Uh, don't really know much about the injuries. The initial reports were that two people had died and 14 were injured. And that was the state of the information for a couple of hours. And it was really only at Governor uh, Greg Abbott's news conference that the, the, uh, the, the fatality toll of 14 became known. Um, and we don't have any, any specific information about injuries, how many or their severity. This was an elementary school. What can you tell us about this particular school? It's in a small town that is about an hour and a half drive west of San Antonio, uh, best known in some circles as the hometown of uh, Matthew McConaughey. It's out uh, deep in the hill country uh, of Texas. The grades where this happened, we're told, were the second through fourth grade uh, section of the school. Um, Obviously very tragic for children of that age to be exposed to something like this. Uh, It's a part of, uh, of... of the outskirts of San Antonio that has seen a lot of population growth in the last couple of years. Um, A lot of people moving in from other states, uh, drawn to the kind of scenic beauty and the small town feel of places like Uvalde, and uh, hardly expecting to confront something like this at their local school. Is it a small enough town that it's hard to imagine not everyone won't be affected in some way or or likely know some of these people who were injured or hurt? Sasha, just following them on social media, which I've been doing for most of the day, I could see people, a local real estate agents or the head of a refrigerator repair company sharing information about, uh, you know, a, a brother or a relative who worked at the school or who worked at the hospital. Uh, it's a place where, you know, interconnections like that are thick and, and word was enormous anxiety uh, and uh, prayers uh, being shared on social media as people who knew each other or had connections were coming together. On the, on the Facebook page of the school and the police department to try to find information and you know, share condolences and commiserate. And Mark, what are Texas officials saying so far? How are they responding? Uh, just really with shock at this point. Um, uh, we don't really know much other than that San Antonio Police Department um, has sent uh, all of, you know, many kinds of resources, SWAT team and investigators to help I believe I uh, saw a report that the Federal uh, Bureau of Alcohol, uh, Tobacco, and Firearms was on the scene. Uh, Texas state uh, troopers are being made available to assist in the investigation. But it looks as if it is, from what the governor said, a single shooter believed to have been acting alone. That's Mark DeVolson, editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Express News. Mark, thank you for these details. You're welcome. Happy to do it. In the world of video game production, workers are often pushed to put in long hours in the run-up to a release. And harassment and bullying have been problems at some of the top studios. Even still, workers organizing is a rare thing. Unions have yet to break into the industry in a big way. That is, until yesterday, when a small group of workers at Activision Blizzard won an election to form a union. As NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, the win could signal a big change in the video game industry. We have three yeses so far. Former Activision employee Jessica Gonzalez, a co-founder of the Game Workers Alliance, the now newly formed union at Activision Blizzard, live-streamed their watch party of the vote count yesterday. 13 to 2! Let's go! The final tally ended up being overwhelming. 19 in favor, 3 against. We did it! We won our union! 
the newly unionized workers in question are 28 quality assurance testers at Raven Software. That's the subsidiary of Activision Blizzard that works on the popular Call of Duty franchise. So a tiny crew, but now they're part of the labor union Communication Workers of America, which, by the way, represents some of the broadcast employees at NPR. Here's Sarah Steffen, secretary-treasurer at CWA. I think these workers came into organizing knowing why they needed a union, right? There's crunch time. That's industry lingo for the long hours. And this can have really negative effects on their health. They have repetitive stress injuries, eye strain, other occupational health issues. And then there's been a lot of sexual harassment and discrimination at this employer as well. Activision Blizzard has spent years dealing with lawsuits and allegations that the company fosters a frat bro culture and discriminates against and harasses women. Workers say CEO Bobby Kotick was dismissive of these reports, triggering protests and walkouts at Activision Blizzard more broadly. One of the phrases you hear a lot in organizing is the boss is the best organizer. And the boss at Activision is a very, very polarizing figure. That's Rebecca Given, associate professor of labor studies at Rutgers University. And she says that while the raw number of workers unionizing at Activision Blizzard is relatively small, the win itself is a big deal for the gaming industry. Yeah, I think workers both uh, within this company and within the industry more broadly uh, we'll see that uh, it's possible to overcome the odds. Activision Blizzard, which is in the middle of an acquisition by Microsoft, didn't make anyone available for comment, but the company sent a statement saying they supported their employees' right to support a union. However, quote, we believe that an important decision that will impact the entire Raven Software studio of roughly 350 people should not be made by 19 Raven employees. Andrew Limbaugh, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Imagine you're hosting a party, you haven't even sent out all the invitations, and already many of your guests say they won't come. That's pretty much the situation the Biden administration finds itself in as the U.S. gets ready to host the Summit of the Americas. The gathering takes place every three to four years, and it's set to begin next month in California. But as NPR's Carrie Kahn reports, many countries are saying they won't come unless everyone in the region gets an invite. From the get-go, the U.S. said that wasn't going to happen. No respecting democracia, no van a recibir invitaciones. If the countries don't respect democracy, they aren't invited said Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Brian Nichols, on Colombian TV earlier this month. Since then, a whole host of countries, including Mexico, Bolivia, and some Caribbean nations, have said without everyone at the table, they'll boycott. John Feely, a former U.S. ambassador, says, sure, summits should be a place to celebrate similar ideas. But summitry can and should also be about the senior-most leaders of countries having hard conversations where they disagree. And Philly says the U.S. engaging Daniel Ortega, Miguel Diaz-Canel, and Nicolas Maduro on a public stage would be a great show. And I think that there would be nothing better than to have President Biden call out the democratic deficits in Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. I don't see the point of having a conversation on democracy with dictatorship that 
the one to be held accountable. But many, like Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue, says inviting leaders who have imprisoned activists, journalists, and political opponents should not be happening. And he criticized those countries demanding that all be included, saying they're just using the issue to distract from their own questionable policies. And that includes countries like Mexico or Guatemala, because they know that they are derelict in their own political commitments towards democracy. Mexico's president has been criticized for his continued attacks on the media and independent institutions, and Guatemala's leader has been accused of meddling in anti-corruption efforts. Then there is the issue of the U.S. treatment of Cuba, the decades-long embargo which is viewed in many corners of Latin America as an outdated and unfair policy, says Arturo Sarrocon, a former Mexican ambassador to the U.S. It's unsurprising that across the Americas, there's a sense that there's an inconsistency between the way the United States engages with, say, Cuba, and the way that it currently engages with other authoritarian regimes around the world. Cuba, long excluded from the gathering, did attend the Summit of the Americas in Panama in 2015 when then-President Obama famously shook hands with Raul Castro. Perhaps in an attempt to smooth over the issue, Biden relaxed some travel restrictions and sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela last week. He even dispatched the First Lady to the region. But former Ambassador Sarrocon says since democratic backsliding in the region is a reality right now, he agrees that the U.S. should use democracy as a litmus test for an invite. In his view, there are too many countries choosing authoritarianism over democracy. That is one of the key fault lines uh, that our generation will be facing in the coming years. The summit comes at a time of waning U.S. influence in the region, and as China has become a bigger player, too. The Biden administration has said all the initial invites have gone out but didn't release any names. The Summit of the Americas is set to begin in less than two weeks in Los Angeles. Carrie Kahn, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, two musical legends, composer and conductor John Williams and cellist Yo-Yo Ma, have collaborated on a new album to mark Williams' 90th birthday. That's coming up next. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Forecast pretty lovely this evening. A clear, dry night ahead tonight, falling to about 50. Tomorrow could make it to 70, another day of sunshine. Thursday should be pretty much the same. Sunny with highs about 70, then warmer and a bit cloudier on Friday. Red Sox start tonight's road trip in Chicago, having won a season-high five consecutive games. Nick Pavetta does the pitching honors against Dylan Cease in this three-game series in Chicago. First pitch is at 8-10 tonight. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Ressa is on a quest to save independent journalism in the digital age. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for a deep dive into the future of journalism at the WBUR Gala on May 25th. Limited tickets remain. Purchase yours at WBUR.org slash gala. And thanks to our presenting sponsors, Kathy and Jim Stone and Plymouth Rock Assurance and Elizabeth and Phil Gross. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 
John Williams has written so many of the movie scores that have gotten stuck in your head over the years. Like the theme to Star Wars. And Jaws. And Harry Potter. That's just to name a few. And over the years, he has also developed many friendships with the musicians he works with, including cellist Yo-Yo Ma. Hello. Ah, my dear. Ah. Ludwig. Ludwig. Angel, we need a cello here today. You do? Yes, we do. Well, there's a cello attached to me. Um, (laughs) I know. John Williams and Yo-Yo Ma first met about 40 years ago. Williams was conductor of the Boston Pops, and Ma was a rising star soloist. We began to be friendly and share a meal here and there and formed a friendship, which is one of the treasures of my life, certainly. Their new album together is called A Gathering of Friends, released just after John Williams' 90th birthday. It highlights some of his film scores, as well as works Williams wrote specifically for his friend, like his concerto for cello and orchestra. And when you wrote the concerto, John, I remember we spent many a day talking about the piece, but having conversations. When we say you wrote it for Yo-Yo to play, was there something, John, that you could hear him doing with it that, that you weren't sure another cellist would do? I think that's probably true. He's in a register that that is probably unheard of in the cello repertoire. The first performance of it was in 1993, and I think it went pretty well, but but I became more interested in it as I heard Yo-Yo play it, as it then was, and began to make some revisions over the years, which we did together, Hmm. and performed it again here and there, and the piece grew. I don't think anyone has ever played the cello this way. Uh, I've never heard cello playing like this. It's quite amazing. John has a great capacity to make me blush. (laughs) (laughs) So this is interesting because if we look at some of the other music presented here, uh, the, the film music, this is not the big triumphant sci-fi movies that a lot of people know you for, John. These are big, weighty historical dramas, including Schindler's List. And I have a question to each of you about that and the challenge of writing music to try to capture the Holocaust and do justice and respect. and Yo-Yo, to you, the question of how, how do you play that and try to express that? Well, of course, the, the Holocaust is certainly beyond me. But in the film, I, I, well, there's a challenge with every film in the sense that we really have to make the assumption that people are going to hear this only once during the two hours of the film, and that, that is their musical experience. And probably need to find some expression that is very direct and very honest. These simple notes, this very accessible tune. That's the thing is that it is so accessible. You're writing about the most awful thing ever and the music, there's still a melody in there. 
I can only hope that it, that it rose to the level that it needed to for such a, a really brilliant film. It was something quite miraculous about the experience, all of it. Which is one of the things I think that is remarkable, having done some recording with John to film music. You know, usually they have the film clip going for an exact number of seconds. And John, without an earpiece or anything, would be conducting the orchestra. And always, to the nanosecond, the phrase ends exactly where it needed to. The other part, Mary Louise, when you're talking about the simplicity of things, I think that's where the artistry comes in, is that you could express the most poignant feelings through simplicity. On a sort of mechanical level, I, I would have to say that anything, at least in my case, that might appear to be simple is a result of a pretty much very, very hard work and constantly changing one note or one note value. And as I'm composing, it's amazing of you how I will transpose as I'm just trying to create the tune, trying different keys. So it's, it's what may appear to be very simple is usually the result of some very, very hard work. One other work to ask about. Um, this is uh, With Malice Toward None from mm -hmm. the biopic Lincoln. It's a nod to Lincoln's mm -hmm. second inaugural address, With Malice Toward None, With Charity Toward All. Mm -hmm. He was encouraging us to bind up our nation's wounds. He was talking mm -hmm. about the Civil War, but I can imagine it feels like a pretty mm -hmm. timely moment to put this out into the world again. Doesn't it, yeah. Were you intentionally doing so? I don't think intentionally at all, but there again was a challenge of how to accompany it, and I tried various Appalachian period pieces from the time, and nothing seemed to satisfy at least me and f finally was able to, to write the little air that, that Yo-Yo now plays on the cello. A thrill for me to be to hear him do it. I think Yo-Yo, your voice in the beginning of that thing is so quintessentially American, may I say. Well, of course, because I'm an immigrant. So am I, <laughs> aren't we all? Mary Louise, do you hear how modest he is? Every time I try and say something really nice about him, he turns it around. That's <laughs> uh, that's one of the essential things you need to know about John Williams. <laughs> I should have been a baseball pitcher. <laughs> you never know what's coming. It's oh. so interesting hearing the two of you talk talk to each other, but also about each other. There's so many years there of respect and, and hard work um, and friendship. It's lovely. A lot of years, but not enough. More to come. There's a lot of love there. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings me to the last thing I want to say, and this is to you, John, and it is happy birthday. Happy okay. 90th. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm told that I should be counting in Celsius, which makes me 32. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, may there be many more to come. Thank you both very much. And here's to friendship and to making beautiful music Great. for many, many years. What a joy to be with you both. That was composer and conductor John Williams and cellist Yo-Yo Ma talking about their new collaboration, A Gathering of Friends, out this month. 
You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Progressive Insurance, with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is 90.9 WBUR. Our stretch of comfortable May weather continues. Tonight should be clear and calm, just some light breezes down around 50 degrees. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine temperatures on the way up to about 70. And then for Thursday, the same thing, sunny and milder, around 70 degrees once again, 55 now in Boston. Red Sox start tonight's road trip in Chicago, having won a season-high five consecutive games. Nick Pavetta does the pitching honors tonight against Dylan Cease of the White Sox. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, an 18-year-old opens fire at an elementary school in a town west of San Antonio, Texas. He shot and killed horrifically incomprehensibly, uh, 14 students uh, and killed a teacher. It's Tuesday, May 24th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The suspect in the shootings is also dead. It's believed he acted alone. Federal forecasters are predicting up to 21 named storms will form in the Atlantic this hurricane season. This is the seventh year in a row with an above-average number of storms forecast. And when astronauts return to Earth, the final step is an important one. You know, these parachutes are either going to work or they're not. You just put your hands in the engineers and the technicians, and you just accept that risk. The complexities of space parachutes coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Another tragic school shooting, this time in the town of Uvalde, some 85 miles west of San Antonio. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says a young man armed with multiple weapons, including possibly a handgun and a rifle, entered an elementary school and opened fire. Abbott says the 18-year-old gunman was also killed. He shot and killed horrifically, incomprehensibly, uh, 14 students uh, and killed a teacher. It's still not clear why the gunman opened fire at Robb Elementary School. Around a dozen children were reportedly being treated at area hospitals. The shooting comes less than two weeks after a gunman opened fire at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, killing 10 black shoppers. President Biden is expected to address the nation regarding the shooting tonight. An even more contagious subvariant of the Omicron variant is now the dominant strain in the U.S. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Here's NPR's Rob Stein. The subvariant, known as BA.2.12.1, spreads more easily than any other variant to come before it. 
That's one big reason why the U.S. is getting hit by yet another surge of infections. More than 100,000 new infections are being reported every day now, and experts think many more people are actually catching the virus every day since so many people are testing themselves at home or not testing at all. This new super-contagious subvariant doesn't appear to make people sicker, but so many people are catching the virus that the number of people getting so sick they're ending up in a hospital is on the rise again, too. Rob Stein, NPR News. Massachusetts' highest court is rejecting a request by oil giant ExxonMobil to dismiss a lawsuit accusing the company of misleading the public about the role its products play in causing climate change. The suit filed in 2019 by Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey alleges the company launched an effort reminiscent of the tobacco industry's long denial campaign about the dangerous effects of cigarettes. The suit goes on to contend ExxonMobil sought to deceive consumers and investors. Stocks ended the day mixed with the S&P and the Nasdaq both down and the Dow up slightly. More from NPR's David Gura. Monday's relief rally, which came on the heels of another week of declines, faded fast as Wall Street was once again focused on retail and technology. Amazon dropped to a 52-week low and Snap saw its shares fall by 43% after the social media company warned this is going to be a tougher quarter than expected. It expects to see lower revenues and its CEO says hiring is going to slow. Facebook's and Google's parent companies both lost ground, and the Nasdaq ended the day down by about 2.4%. Amid fears of a possible recession, the yield on the 10-year Treasury fell to 2.73%. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Taking a look at the numbers, the Dow was up 48 points. The Nasdaq closed down 270 points. The S&P 500 was down 32 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Education Commissioner says he wants to work with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu on a path forward for Boston public schools. Commissioner Jeff Riley's comments come today, a day after the state released an audit highly critical of the city's school district. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, Riley stopped short of proposing a state takeover of the school system. Riley is giving city officials about a week to provide him with a statement of assurances on how they'll address the operational issues that the district review raised, including problems with bus transportation and poor quality of school facilities. But community groups in Boston say they're frustrated by the lack of specifics from the state about possible solutions. Charlie Kim is with the Special Education Parent Advisory Council. Commissioner Riley said, Every option is on the table. Great. Can you list what those options are? Because if you're putting it on the table, that means you have an idea of what they are. Kim adds he is still optimistic that change to student services is possible, especially with the city's budget surplus and growing parent engagement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city will take steps to address concerns about homelessness and substance use disorder in the South End. Today, the mayor said the city will increase police presence and street cleaning near the intersection of Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It's in response to neighborhood complaints about disorderly conduct and drug use in the area that's home to many treatment services. The city cleared a tent encampment there this wintertime, but many people have returned as the weather's warmed up. Mayor Wu says the city will also expand treatment services throughout Boston and increase access to housing. The state's Department of Transportation is seeking federal funding for some big construction projects. The state says it hopes to. It has applied for federal grants to help cover the cost of replacing bridges to and from Cape Cod. It also applied for a grant to partially fund the straightening of the Mass Turnpike through Alston.
And Steamship Authority ferries won't run to or from Martha's Vineyard, uh, town of Oak Bluffs, for the rest of of the evening. The authority says it's temporarily closing the ticket office there because of staffing issues related to COVID-19. And the forecast should be clear and dry tonight, down just a bit to about 50 degrees, not too far from that right now. Tomorrow should be about 20 degrees higher, topping out at 70 with sunny skies. Thursday, sun's back, highs around 70 once again. 55 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There has been a shooting at an elementary school in Texas. It happened at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, about 85, 85 miles west of San Antonio. Here's what we know so far. According to the governor of Texas, 14 children and a teacher are dead. More than a dozen other children have been injured. Governor Greg Abbott says the suspected gunman is dead. Texas Public Radio's Brian Kirkpatrick is in Uvalde and joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hi. So I've mentioned just some of the details that we know so far. Can you add to them? What have you learned? We understand, according to the governor's office, the gunman entered the school around 1132, armed with possibly two weapons and opened fire. And as you reported earlier, 14 dead, uh, rather 14 students dead and one teacher. They wrapped up a news conference here at the Civic Center in Uvalde, but did not place actual numbers on dead or wounded. So we're still uh, waiting for more information here at the Civic Center. And how much do we know about what kind of firearms were involved? Uh, The governor's office apparently reported that he may have been uh, armed with a rifle and a handgun. But again, the local investigators have been uh, shying away from details. Uh, They would not take any questions after a news conference that wrapped up about uh, 30 minutes ago. We're hoping to hear more again uh, later this evening. Okay. Well, Brian, what is the scene like where you are right now? Like, where exactly have you been in Uvalde? Uvalde is a very small town, largely farming and ranching, a little more than an hour's drive west of uh, San Antonio, very peaceful town. Uh, The scene is largely here at the Civic Center, where uh, parents or uh, loved ones have been coming and going, checking on the uh, information about uh, you know their loved ones through authorities here at the Civic Center, but have been quickly ushered away by law enforcement. Uh, uh, so far, family members don't seem, uh, you know, are obviously very distraught, and uh, we haven't seen much comment right now. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little more about the town of Uvalde or, or the surrounding area? Like, just give us a sense. Well, yeah, Uvalde is one of those typical Texas towns that largely revolves around Friday night football. There's a lot of civic pride through your uh, Friday night football games, and you know you'll see booster signs up in all the windows during the school year. And these kind of towns are very close knit because of that, uh, and that includes their schools. They're a central part of the community. So when something happens to a school, it really affects everybody here because a lot of folks that grow up here, you know, live and die here, and uh, you know, it's so it's that kind of connected community. Yeah. It's also anyway. That's that's hopefully gives you some idea. Well, as to the suspected gunman, who we are told is now dead, do we know anything about him? I'm, we are hearing that he was 18 years old. Do we know anything about a possible motive? 
We we do not. We uh, just know that he's 18 and hear from a U- Uvalde. Uh, we're, again, still waiting on uh, more information. There's a lot of law enforcement here at the Civic Center, a lot of family members, a lot of community members. The county judge uh, showed up here, uh, Bill Mitchell, and he has been greeting people as they come to the Civic Center and offering his condolences. Yeah, well, I can imagine. So uh, how have local and other state officials been responding? Can you give us an idea? You know, I have been uh, nonstop uh, since this happened and I've uh, been going between the school and the Civic Center. But uh, I believe a lot of state officials, local officials, you know, are already expressing, you know, condolences and, and dismay, you know, that yet another one of these shootings has happened in this country. It never seems to end. Well, as we've been told by the governor's office, 14 children and one teacher are now dead. But those who are injured, do you know anything about what condition they are in at the moment? What do we, we know? Understand- we understand they went to uh, medical facilities here in Uvalde and also in the San Antonio. In fact, driving uh, out here, I had several ambulances passing by me going back towards San Antonio as I was coming into Uvalde. But as far as conditions, uh, no, we're not hearing anything on that either. Okay. That is Brian Kirkpatrick with Texas Public Radio reporting from Uvalde with the latest details about the shooting. That has left at least 14 children and one teacher dead. Thank you very much, Brian. We are going to be staying with this story throughout the evening. All right, we're just one week away from the start of hurricane season, and federal forecasters are predicting a whopping 14 to 21 named storms this year. It's part of a trend of more destructive storms driven in part by climate change. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's climate team has more. Between 6 and 10 of the storms are forecast to be full-blown hurricanes, which is a lot. Rick Spinrad is the head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. NOAA? is predicting an above-normal 2022 Atlantic hurricane season, which would make this year the seventh consecutive above-normal season. That's bad news for the millions of people who live in the potential path of a storm, which includes a huge swath of the U.S., from the northeast to the southeast and the Gulf Coast. Matthew Rosencrantz is NOAA's lead hurricane forecaster. So hurricanes are anywhere from 200 to 1,000 miles um, across in their impact. Um, So you can be even a thousand miles from the coastline and have an impact. Flooding is a big impact, he says. Climate change is making storms rainier. That was on deadly display just last year with Hurricane Ida. It made landfall in Louisiana with powerful wind and rain and killed dozens of people there. Then it moved northeast across nine states. Just last year, uh, the remnants of Hurricane Ida uh, caused uh, torrential rains, and flash flooding that killed 13 New Yorkers in basement apartments. That's New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And to underscore how widespread hurricane risk really is, NOAA announced its 2022 hurricane forecast in New York City, not exactly the place most Americans think of when they think of hurricanes. As for why we find ourselves staring down another destructive hurricane season, There have always been cycles of more and less active hurricane seasons. The last seven years or so have been an active cycle. But climate change is also a big part of it. Hotter air and hotter ocean water create perfect conditions for hurricanes. And Matthew Rosencrantz says this year the water in the Gulf of Mexico could be extra hot because of something called the loop current. It's an area of warm water um, that kind of 
breaks off and moves from east to west across the Gulf of Mexico. Imagine a river of hot water looping into the Gulf of Mexico, and then a blob detaches and just sits there, right in the path of any hurricane that's headed toward land. The storm does form and move across that area. Um, it's kind of like moving on to like an area where it can be kind of supercharged really quickly. That could mean storms that get big and dangerous very quickly, too quickly for people to evacuate. Or it could help create storms that dump catastrophic amounts of rain, like Ida. Federal forecasters are clear. Get ready for a tough hurricane season. It starts June 1st and runs through November. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. What goes up must come down. So Boeing's Starliner capsule returns to Earth tomorrow after a short stay at the International Space Station. It's a test mission before NASA gives the company the go-ahead to launch astronauts later this year. And the final step of a safe return comes down to parachutes. From member station WMFE in Orlando, Brendan Byrne reports these are complex systems that are challenging to design and worrisome to engineers. Falling back to Earth from space is no easy feat. Before its return, a spacecraft is traveling at orbital speed, something like 17,000 miles per hour, or 25 times the speed of sound. The vehicle has to punch through the atmosphere at just the right angle and slow to a crawl before touching back down on the planet. So you're hurtling back through the atmosphere and you're seeing, uh, well, particularly from my point of view, through my toes, I was able to see the flashes of pink and yellow and white and see the sparks fly by. Chris Sombrowski flew in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule last summer. The density of Earth's atmosphere takes care of a lot of that slowing, but creates an incredible amount of energy and g-forces. The atmosphere can only do so much. About six miles up is when the intricate parachute sequence begins, with pre-parachutes known as drogues, says Pedro Llanos, a professor of spaceflight operations at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. These two drug shoots slow down the capsule significantly, going from almost supersonic speeds to just about 0.2.3 Mach. That's still not slow enough, so another set of massive parachutes deploys next, letting the capsule float down at just 15 miles per hour. A lot of astronauts have uh, referred to this one being one of the most difficult technologies. Parachute technology has been around since the dawn of human spaceflight, but it's still an engineering challenge. The technology is complex, the atmospheric conditions of deployment are constantly changing, and Janos says modeling parachutes using computers has been difficult. It is rare that if you do test after test of these parachute technologies, you will encounter the same conditions. It will perform at the same level. Both Boeing and SpaceX are working with NASA to transport astronauts to space and back. While they land in two different places, Boeing's Starliner touches down on land, SpaceX's Dragon splashes down at sea, the parachute technology is similar, and both companies have run into challenges. During the return of SpaceX's capsule with astronauts on board, one of the parachutes took an extra 75 seconds to deploy. Two months later, an uncrewed mission had a similar problem. NASA's Steve Stitch says an investigation afterwards found no major issues. So far, we don't see anything that uh, looks um, strange in any of the imagery or uh, off-nominal. Still, those hiccups are top of mind for the astronauts inside the capsule, making the journey back through the atmosphere, says space flyer Chris Sombrowski. For me, it was just a point where, you know, these parachutes are either going to work or they're not. But at this point, you just put your hands in the engineers and the technicians, uh, and you just accept that risk. All eyes will be on Boeing's Starliner return, including the astronauts who will soon fly in the vehicle, 
waiting patiently for the parachutes to inflate and the spacecraft to make its graceful fall from space safely. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. President Biden's expected to speak tonight about the shooting today at an elementary school in Texas. Fifteen people are dead, most of them children. The suspect is also dead. We will bring you the president's remarks at 8.15 tonight. In business news today on Wall Street, the Dow managed to gain 0.15 percent. That's about 48 points. It closed at 31,929. S&P and Nasdaq both came out on the downside. S&P fell about three quarters of a percent to finish the day at 3941. The Nasdaq tumbled more than two and a quarter percent to close at 11,264. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. The aviation arm of Boston-based General Electric is a step closer to increasing the usage of a greener alternative to jet fuel. GE Aviation says one of its aircraft engines was about was able to run entirely on so-called sustainable aviation fuel. It works a lot like conventional jet fuel, but emits less greenhouse gases. Prior to now, GE's engines have relied on a 50-50 mixture of sustainable alternative fuel and petroleum-based jet fuel. The company has a goal of net zero emissions in its aviation by 20. 50. The forecast is next. Join Anita Hill and Nina Totenberg at WBUR's gala. Tickets at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to sponsor Molly Shannon. Clear and dry tonight. About 50 tomorrow should be sunny with highs just about 70 degrees. This is WBUR. Americans really eat a weird set of foods. And some of those foods contribute to climate change. But our choices can make a difference. What we found with that one single substitution, it dropped that person's dietary carbon footprint by 48%. WBUR's new newsletter, Cooked, can help you help the planet from your kitchen table, whether you're omnivore, vegan, or somewhere in between. To sign up, go to WBUR.org cooked. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. This is a fragile moment for the U.S. economy. Now, maybe you haven't been tracking every headline on inflation or whether a recession is coming, but chances are you felt it in your everyday life. So many of us are feeling the rise and rise of the cost of gas and groceries. Here's Kim Boder, who we caught filling up her tank in Harlem. It's disgusting. Like, people have to really decide on whether to buy food or to buy gas to get to work, to get to the food. It's it's really ridiculous. What's interesting is that many people feel anxious, even though the job market is strong. Here's Shannon Carr, who runs a nonprofit that helps needy families in Cincinnati. We used to just feed homeless people. We're taking meals to families now with children, the working poor. 
because people are having to choose between healthy food and, you know, things that they can afford. And another worry that the Federal Reserve's efforts to combat inflation could tip the economy into recession. Utah realtor Kenny Parcell says rising interest rates are already taking a toll on the housing market. This is real life stuff. This is young families, people that were barely getting in before and the dream of home ownership, and they're watching it go, go away. From housing to food to transportation, we are going to talk through where the economy is right now with three NPR colleagues, Brittany Cronin, who covers energy, Chris Arnold, who reports on housing, and Scott Horsley, who covers the economy. Big picture. Welcome to all three of you. Hey, Mary Louise. Yeah. All right, Scott, you start. We'll, we'll go big picture first. We've mentioned inflation. We've mentioned how high prices are. Is that affecting what people buy? So far, inflation has not put much of a dent in consumer spending, and that's important because that is the big driver of the U.S. economy. Obviously, the people who feel it most are those who are just getting by. McDonald's says some of its most price-sensitive customers have started to downsize their orders. Walmart says some grocery shoppers are switching to cheaper store brands. Mm -hmm. Shannon Carr, who talked to our colleagues at Weekend Edition Sunday about shopping at Dollar Tree stores in Cincinnati, says she's seeing long lines there, even though Dollar Tree famously raised its prices to a dollar and a quarter late last year. The prices at the other stores are extremely high, so you have to choose your battles. And Dollar Tree, you know, at least it's under $5, right? (laughs) Low-income families tend to suffer most from inflation for a couple of reasons. First, a lot of what they buy is necessities, so there's not a lot of opportunity to cut back. And secondly, they often pay higher prices even for the same items. They might not have the money or the gasoline to drive to Costco and get a bulk discount, for example. Yeah, speaking of of gasoline, Brittany, I want to bring you in here because anybody who's filled up their car recently knows prices have just skyrocketed. You've also been reporting, though, on the cost of diesel, um, which is so critical for, for trucks and truck drivers. What is going on there? Yeah, so diesel prices hit their highest level ever in the past week. So I spoke with Eric Jammer. He owns and operates a massive heavy haul truck out of Houston, Texas. At first, it was sticker shock because, you know, you hit that point where, you know, God, this is what it used to take to fill up and this thing is still going. Holy crap, it's not stopped yet. It's $800. And you're like, okay, I got to do this again tomorrow. And diesel prices are skyrocketing in part because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And also the U.S. is exporting more diesel to Europe to help reduce its reliance on Russian fuel. And so as diesel prices go up, so do prices of the goods these trucks haul, much like at those $1.25 stores that Scott mentioned. The dollar twenty-five stores, yeah, they may need to rebrand. Um, you know, we were talking about the high prices at grocery stores, even at places like McDonald's. What about the people, Brittany, who grow the food? Talk to me about how farmers are affected by all this. Mm-hmm. Farmers are up against really high costs. Some of that is diesel for the tractors, tillers, sprayers, harvesters. I spoke with Phil Four. He's a sixth generation corn and soybean farmer in Western Illinois. And he says the price of diesel, yeah, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but it's not the thing that hurts him the most. Fertilizer price is the thing that is really, I'm gonna say it's it's gone off the tracks. Versus that's typically the biggest expense on the farm. And he's paying double what he did last year. 
Now, both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of fertilizer. Russia is, of course, facing heavy sanctions. That drags down the global supply of fertilizer, pushing up food prices here at home. Hmm, so interesting. All right, Scott Horsley, what's it going to take to bring down inflation? How does this end? Well, it's a case of supply and demand. For over a year now, demand has been outstripping supply. That's why prices have been going up. It would have been nice and relatively painless if supply had just caught up and inflation had come down on its own. That's what the Federal Reserve was hoping for for much of last year. But that didn't happen. So now the central bank is deliberately trying to tamp down demand by making it more expensive to borrow money. And that is not painless. Uh, It means higher cost for credit card balances and car loans and especially mortgages. Yeah, mortgages are extremely painful right now for people trying to buy a house. That is absolutely true. Yeah, Chris Arnold, jump in here. Thanks. We should say that during the pandemic, home prices themselves went up 30% just in two years, which is a massive move. And now on top of that, with the Fed raising interest rates, it's magnifying the the cost of buying. Mortgage rates move a lot in in times like this because the market anticipates what the Fed is going to be doing over the next year, and they adjust quickly. So rates have gone from less than 3% this past summer to above 5%. What that means, you do the math on that, and for a $500,000 loan, it's more than $600 a month more in monthly payments to buy that same house now. Which is not nothing. That's not spare change. I mean, the bottom line then is what fewer people can afford to become homeowners now? Right. And the numbers out today show that there are fewer people buying new construction homes. And actually, some people who've signed contracts to buy a new construction home, there have been delays. We've all heard about the supply chain problems. And so now it's six months or a year later. And they thought they could buy this house, but now rates are so much higher and they can't qualify to get a mortgage, so they can't buy the house. I talked to Kenny Parcell, a a realtor in Spanish Fork, Utah, about this. We've had 10 people we've been working with that are canceling right now. There's a lot of tears shed on uh, you have real empathy for these people. But the problem is, too, Chris, is rent prices are so high right now as well. You know, they can't afford to stay in their rental. They can't afford to lose their construction deposit or their earnest money. They're in a real pickle. And he says he's got home buyers with deposits of upwards of $20,000, and they're worried they're going to lose that money because they're going to have to back out of buying these houses. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing here is, Scott Horsley, I'm going to give you the last word. This is the system working, right? This is what the Fed is trying to do, is make it more expensive to borrow money because that's how they're hoping to cool off inflation. That's right. And the challenge is to cool off inflation without putting the economy itself into a deep freeze. The Fed has made it clear it's willing to tolerate some short-term pain if that's what it takes to get prices under control. One positive note, most Americans came into this year in relatively good financial shape with some extra money in the bank, so they do have some financial cushion to help them weather this rough patch. All right. Thanks to you all. We've been talking with NPR's Scott Horsley and Brittany Cronin and Chris Arnold. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Lovely this evening. A clear, dry night tonight, falling to about 50. Tomorrow could make it to 70 with another day of sunshine. Thursday should be pretty much the same. Sunny, highs about 70 degrees. Red Sox hit the road for a three-game set with the Chicago White Sox tonight. It'll be Nick Pavetta against Dylan Cease. Game time is 8:10. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6:30. All Things Considered continues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best, networking local fishermen. Fish, sushi, and shellfish from the Boston Fish Pier, delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at redsbest.com. Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Boston, Watertown, Brighton, and more. Redfirefarm.com. And Jean Brooks Landscapes, dedicated to designing, constructing, and maintaining imaginative gardens for 32 years in greater Boston. Photos at jeanbrookslandscapes.com. One of the biggest surprises of the war is how well Ukrainian forces have performed against Russia. Behind some of that is a little-known program built around the U.S. National Guard. Yes, we do increase actual combat capability of our partners, but what we really deliver is this notion of we really are coming in to help. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.